This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. John Fesco, Academic Dean and Associate Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. He's the author of several books, including Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine, and Word, Water, and Spirit, A Reformed Perspective on Baptism. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome to the island. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. Okay, just so the listener understands, we're stipulating that you have your English Bible, your Greek New Testament, your Hebrew Old Testament, and the Septuagint, if you so desire. So beyond that, Mm -hmm. you're on a ship, it wrecked, you're all alone on a desert island. Everyone else is safe. They just went to different desert islands. So we don't want anyone to feel depressed. Right. You have five volumes that you've taken with you on this trip and miraculously survived the wreckage of the ship. All right. And there you are waiting rescue. Okay. Which five books did you bring with you? We'll just walk through them one at a time. Okay. I think the first one, although these aren't necessarily in any particular order, but the first one that comes to mind is Greg Beals and D.A. Carson's Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. It's a fantastic book. One of the things I love about it and maybe a lot of people don't realize it, is that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament a lot. And one of the things that these editors have done is they've put together a bunch of terrific scholars to comment and explain how the New Testament quotes, alludes to, or even sometimes echoes Old Testament passages. And so to me, it's just one of the most fascinating things to read about. And it really shows a couple of things for me personally. It it helps people understand the unity of the scriptures. It shows that for Paul, for Peter, for the apostles, for Jesus, for every first century theologian, their Bible was the Old Testament. And I always kind of enjoy reading it because it strikes me as being one of the best antidotes to dispensationalism, this whole idea that the Old Testament was for the Jews and the New Testament is for the church. No, it shows that the scriptures are an organic whole. And it's just a fascinating book. And it really, I think, helps people to understand how the writers of the New Testament used the Old Testament and how much they were entrenched in it. You use the word dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. In case the listener isn't entirely sure what you mean by that, Mm -hmm. can you give a quick thumbnail, sketch, definition, characterization? Sure. I think the hallmark characteristic of dispensationalism is that they believe that the church and Israel are two distinct entities in God's redemptive plan. And at least classically speaking, they believe that God had his plan for the Jews for their redemption. And when Jesus came, they rejected him. And so God then went to plan B to work with the Gentiles, and some point before the consummation, before the end of all things, Christ will come back to, again, work with the Jews, and it involves things like the rapture and all those kinds of things. And at least popularly speaking, it's best uh, perhaps uh, summarized in the Left Behind series. One of the points of discussion between Reformed theology and some versions of evangelicalism, including dispensationalism, is the question of how the Old Testament scriptures relate to the New Testament, and particularly which interprets which. 
Mm-hmm. As you've worked through this volume, what has it shown you about the way these relate, and particularly whether we should think of the Old Testament controlling, in a sense, the New Testament or vice versa? I think maybe it could be looked at from two different ways, two different vantage points. The first would be is that the Old Testament gives the New Testament authors categories, the vocabulary, the concepts, the doctrine, if you will, that the New Testament authors are working with. But at the same time, given the progressive unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the scriptures, the New Testament is the fulfillment and, if you will, the commentary on what occurs and what's going on in the Old Testament, so that oftentimes the New Testament explains what might only be explained in shadows or in rough sketch in the Old Testament. Uh, Augustine, I think, has a phrase that I really enjoy, and it uh, always resonates with me, is that the new is hidden in the old, and the old is revealed in the new, in terms of the relationship between the two Testaments. And this volume is available, by the way... Through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu slash bookstore. Is there a particular place in this volume or a particular portion or contribution chapter essay that you particularly liked? I think that a couple of sections resonate with me, especially uh, the book of Hebrews and uh, the explanations there, because I don't know percentage-wise, but I would suspect that the book of Hebrews is one of the more Old Testament-entrenched books in the New Testament. That's not to say that the others ignore the Old Testament, of course not, but it's steeped in it. And I suppose because the author of the book of Hebrews is talking to converted Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back. So he's talking about all of these things that are involved in the Old Testament to show them that, no, Christ is come, and we don't want to try to turn back the clock. So yeah, maybe the, the section on Hebrews is particularly fascinating. What's your second volume? I'm going to cheat, but hopefully this cheating is going to be something that will warm the cockles of your heart in that, I want to say the Institutes, but Francis Turretin's Institutes, and I know that those are, that's three volumes. That's okay. You're okay. not cheating any more than your faculty okay. brethren. They've all managed to wiggle in multi-volume sets. I draw the line at Calvin's New Testament commentaries, though. That, that's just too much. Right, yeah. I suspect a lot of people would say Calvin's Institutes, but I really like a whole lot better. That's not to say Calvin's bad, but I love Calvin, but uh, Francis Turretin's Institutes are just fantastic. I know that there were other thinkers during the time, other great theologians, uh, Van Maastricht and Coxeus and all these other great theologians, but Turretin is just amazingly clear razor-sharp thinking. He just employs theological distinctions with just amazing clarity. And what's nice, too, is that he breaks up the theology that he discusses in terms of different questions, and you can often find an answer because he's answering the question that you particularly have in mind, and he says, well, here's the state of the question. In other words, we don't mean this, and we don't mean that. We mean this. We affirm this. We deny that. And I know that may seem odd, but and maybe you found this too, but I find it amazingly devotional at times because it's just so clear, and he's explaining things with exegesis and in reference to history and in terms of the covenants. It's really amazing stuff, and I wish we could have some more minds like Turretin in the church in our own day, but uh, that would definitely be one set, even though it's three books, that I would try to cram in my little floatable box that would make it onto the island. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, we've already determined that the faculty tend to travel on these ships with large suitcases (laughs) full of books, (laughs) which, as you noted, have remarkable flotation (laughs) properties as well. So evidently we plan ahead when we go on these ships. I want to go back to the point you made in passing, and that is the devotional character, because Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the things that gives a work like Turretin its Mm -hmm. lasting 
value, and mm-hmm. that is historically in Reformed theology, we prayed while we studied and we studied while we prayed. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can reflect on that a little bit. Say, for example, when Turretin's talking about the doctrine of justification, you know, there's always the pitfall that you could get lost in his distinctions and all of the specificity that he is detailing there. But at the end of the day, he says something to the effect that nothing could be more practical than to realize that when we stand in the presence of God, we know that we stand justified by the work of Christ and that that imparts to us the greatest amount of assurance of hope and confidence in knowing what God has done for us in Christ. And that's so very true. And Turretin has his sermons, and they read very differently. But as you realize that as you're talking about, say, imputation, to me it's very freeing and very confidence-filling to know that it doesn't depend on me. My redemption depends exclusively on Christ and what Christ has done for me, his perfect law-keeping given for me, to know that my status in God's presence is indefectible, it's unchanging, it's immutable, and that is a great source of comfort, especially in the face of my own fallibility and sinfulness and faithlessness at times. Let's say the reader goes to the website and orders from the bookstore his <laughs> own set right. of Turton's Institutes, or perhaps calls the bookstore, and give the reader some advice as to mm-hmm. how to manage this work, where to start, how mm-hmm. to think of it. Let's say the reader doesn't have a ton of background in mm-hmm. 16th and 17th century Reformed theology and academic Reformed theology. Yeah, I think the first thing to do is I would go to the last volume and read Benedict Pictet's funeral oration to get a little bit of an idea of what Turretin was like as a person, to recognize the fact that he was a pastor, pretty much first and foremost, and that he pastored the Italian congregation of refugees there in Geneva. So he was a pastor at heart. And that also gives a little bit of a personal frame of reference for the man. Then proceed to the beginning of the volume, volume one, and I would say Turretin should be read in small doses. (laughs) It's not something that you can just kind of kick back like a novel or something like that and just read. And it's something that you might have to look up some words here and there from time to time. I'm not saying that I'm putting this in my floating cart, but my Richard Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek theological terms drawn principally from scholastic Protestant theology is really helpful in reading that if you keep that next to you. But uh, if not, just reading very carefully and slowly. And I think you could read it devotionally, just taking a question a day, and it probably wouldn't take very long. There's some portions that are a little bit denser than others, uh, say when he's talking about the doctrine of God and some of the distinctions there, but start with a funeral oration and then go to the first volume and start reading maybe a question a day, something like that. Great. Volume three. Yes, Volume 3. Gerhardus Voss's Pauline Eschatology is terrific. In the past, I've assigned it to students, and they've bitterly complained because they find it so difficult to read. I think that the running joke that I've heard students say is it's yet to have been translated into English. And though Voss wrote in English, he was probably thinking in Dutch. But I always tell them it doesn't get really good until you read it about the third time which is usually disheartening for them because they're like, what, I've got to read this three times. But I read it the first time and I used a yellow highlighter and didn't highlight a whole lot. Read it a second time, used a different color highlighter, found myself highlighting a whole lot more. By the third read and the third different color, and if you look at my copy of it, I'm highlighting all over the place. And I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I see this before? It's just an amazing explanation of Paul's theology. And while I don't want to isolate 
the Pauline corpus from the rest of the scriptures, it is helpful to understand everything that Paul's talking about. And what also is amazing to me is the fact that what a lot of people are saying now about, say, the New Testament and Paul, biblical theology, Voss was writing this stuff back in the 30s or even beforehand. And I think a good friend of mine told me that Voss at first couldn't find a publisher for the book and had to self-publish it. Uh, and then finally it was picked up, and then now it's eventually carried by Theonar. Uh, yeah, it's just a fantastic book. I absolutely love that book. What is there in particular that you like about it? Certainly it's not the style. Mm-hmm. So if the listener, again, you can get this volume through the bookstore. So let's say the <laughs> reader orders this. Again, this is maybe a little bit like Turretin. It's going to be a challenge and probably should be read slowly and in small bits. And as you say, it's quite rewarding, most rewarding. So beyond the style and the difficulties, what is it in particular that attracts you to this? Why is this such an outstanding explanation of Paul? I think that a lot of people in the recent past, they always look to Paul and to the New Testament to talk about redemption in terms of just the order of salvation. And that's fine, and that's not a problem. But one of the things I think that uh, Voss does is he really connects the order of salvation to redemptive history, or in particular to the doctrine of the covenants. And in this case, he connects it to the unfolding nature of God's redemptive plan, and he really grasps how Paul is kind of unfolding that. So to state the, ter- the, the idea technically, when Paul sets forth his doctrine of Christ, he is at the same time setting forth his doctrine of last things, or his Christology is his eschatology. You can add another layer to that and say that he is uh, not only setting forth his doctrine of Christ and his doctrine of last things, but he's also setting forth his doctrine of salvation. For Paul, and Voss, I think, picks up on this insight, is that Paul's Christology is also his eschatology and his soteriology. And you could probably add layers to that, but I think that's perhaps at its core what Voss picks up about Paul. And it's just really, uh, you know, very amazing. You know, as, as difficult as it can be, I think that the more you get into it, the clearer it does become, and it does become, I think, an easier read, I think, in that way. When Voss says eschatology, he is certainly thinking about last things, but he isn't just thinking about last things. He's also thinking about the current relationship between heaven and earth. Explain that, please, right after this. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. We don't realize this, but or many people don't realize this, but Paul picks up on this, and he picks on this up from the Gospels, from Christ. It's the idea that when Jesus begins to preach, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And uh, all of the prophecies say in the Old Testament about the coming king, heaven come down on earth, if you will, is uh, fulfilled and realized in Jesus. And this all eventuates with the uh, first arrival of Christ, with the first advent of Christ in his incarnation. So that you have the arrival of the kingdom, and in a sense, heaven itself, with the arrival of the king. And uh, I think that uh, going back to a previous point we made with the dispensationalists. Our dispensationalist friends will say that, well, the end doesn't come until 
the very end, the last couple of years right before Jesus returns, and Jesus' kingdom isn't really begun until Jesus returns at the very end. And uh, if Jesus says that if I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. And so it, it's just, I think, the realization, I think Voss picks this up from Paul, and Paul picks it up from Jesus, and the Old Testament as well, is the idea that, no, with the arrival of the king comes the kingdom, heaven itself come down to earth, and uh, the new creation has begun in the person and work of Christ uh, as he begins to redeem us. And we could say that the epicenter of the unfolding and the revealing of the new creation occurs within the church uh, as Christ draws sinners to himself through the gospel. What's your fourth volume? It's an Eastern Orthodox writer. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, of course, the church split uh, in, in the, around the 11th century in East and West. But uh, Patrick Reardon is his name, and it's a book called Christ in the Psalms. And it is a terrific book. When I was preaching through the Psalms, Reardon really organically unfolds where and how Christ is connected or appears in the Psalms of, uh, of, of the Old Testament. I think that a lot of people will say, uh, well, there are certain messianic psalms, uh, say Psalm 110 or Psalm, uh, maybe Psalm 8 uh, or Psalm 2. Uh, but what Reardon shows, and again, he shows this organically, is the idea that no, all of the psalms in one way or another are pointed to, uh, point to Christ or are connected to Christ. And he really uh, shows this quite beautifully. There are times, of course, when I think his Eastern Orthodoxy, his theology intrudes upon the text, but a good careful discerning reading of that will be able to sort out the, the wheat from the chaff. But for the most part, it's um, it's an amazingly clear book. And what's nice is that in roughly two pages or so, he treats all of the psalms. So each psalm gets about two pages so that it's a wonderful devotional book, if anybody's looking for a great devotional book about Christ and the psalms, to where you can read in about two pages how Christ is connected to each one of the psalms. It's a, it's a terrific little book. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Is there a particular passage or place, chapter, section of the book that you found particularly attractive or effective? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the, uh, one of the psalms in particular sticks out in my mind. Psalm 22, this is the famous passage where that Christ quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And uh, what Reardon says is he draws upon this and how scholarship has identified Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel account, if you will, of the crucifixion. And when you read about David's cry of dereliction, and then you think about that David's actions as a Messiah, as one of God's anointed kings, not the anointed king, but as a Messiah, that David's life and actions foreshadow and point forward to, or are a rough sketch, it's a rough sketch, if you will, of Christ's sufferings, then you can see that from the earliest days uh, of redemptive history, or in this case, from you know from David's lifetime, that David was looking forward to and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And I think that at some level, David understood that his life was functioning as this rough sketch, because uh, you know he in Psalm one ten looks forward to the Lord. Uh, coming and sitting on the throne next to Yahweh. And he understands that his Lord would be greater than he would, but at the same time equal to uh, Yahweh. And so I'm not saying that uh, David had the exact specific degree or degree of specificity of knowledge of Christ that we do, but he nevertheless did that. And when you read that 
that Psalm 22 and recognize that Christ took those words upon his lips and how the psalm concludes with David seeking shelter in the Lord, uh, I think what it really impresses upon me is that even as Christ hangs on the cross, he still says, my God. You know, so even though he's undergoing the wrath of his Father, bearing it on our behalf, he still looks to his Father uh, and calls him my God. It's difficult to come up with adequate words, but it's it's impressive, to say the least. The Psalms are at the heart, really, of Reformed theology and piety, and particularly Reformed worship. There was a time, and in some cases not very long ago, when in a Reformed congregation, God's people were gathered in public worship, and the Psalter would have been their songbook. And it seems to me they understood that the Psalms were really ultimately centered around Christ. And sometimes when we read the Psalms, we can miss that fact. We shouldn't miss the original horizon, but ultimately, as you're, I think, suggesting, they really need to be read in light of Christ. How would getting back to that way of reading the Psalms and making use of them in worship, how would that benefit us? I think that one of the things that's helpful, at least when I preach through the Psalms, what I would do is I would, of course, use and study Reardon's book, but I would preach through the Psalm, and then I would say, in the light of what we now understand this psalm and how it's connected to Christ. Let's sing this psalm. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that they see, okay, well, hey, the psalms are prayers uh, in many ways. And so if I am at a loss as to how to pray, if if I'm not sure what words to use, uh, how to praise God, or in many cases, what do I do when I feel abandoned? What do I do when I feel depressed? And a lot of people don't know what to say. Well, in that way, the psalms can be amazingly instructive in that there are, I don't know, for lack of a better description, there are psalms for all occasions. And I think that in today's church where many people believe that sadness, depression, or feelings of abandonment are things that you're not supposed to feel because you're living the victorious Christian life, we can see that, no, you know what? God's saints in days of, days of old, they did know those emotions. And to whom did they turn? And uh, in whom did they seek and find their shelter? And think of Psalm 91, seeking shelter beneath the mighty wings of the Lord, our great covenant redeemer that is ultimately revealed in Christ. I think in that way, it can be amazingly beneficial and edifying for the church. Yeah, absolutely. And your final volume. Boy, it was really tough, and I was scanning around my office trying to figure out which ones. And I think I have to pick—I don't know if I could do a set, but I try to reduce it to one—is our colleague Mike Horton. He wrote Covenant and Eschatology. This is a book. It's dense. And when I say dense, I don't mean that it's a dumb book. It's by no means that. It's a very intellectually stimulating book. But I think that one of the reasons why I love that book so much is that when I was in seminary, I had my professors railing on me with all sorts of postmodern ideas. And when I say, we say, I guess when I talk about postmodern, it's the, the philosophy of maybe a, it's probably a bit of an over-exaggeration, but philosophy of relativism in many ways. You know, whatever's right for you, that's fine. And if it works for you, that's fine. That's a very maybe overly gross simplification of it, but that, that hopefully that'll convey to our listeners what, what we're talking about. I, I've told other people this, but I feel like he's Paul at Mars Hill again, and many people always say that they speak so highly of Van Til, really kind of going after unbelief, and I really think that that's what uh, he's doing in that book. I don't know, I felt like I was on the losing team for a long time, getting hammered, and all of a sudden another quarterback stepped out onto the field and was starting to engineer a comeback. You know, just watching 
the different sources that he interacts with, the level that he does, and all doing so with classic Reformed theology, uh, showing its relevance, its abiding truthfulness, and using some of the old categories, say, from Turretin that a lot of people have forgotten about. In many ways, I don't know, maybe you would agree, maybe disagree, but I I almost say that it's a new scholasticism for our own day. It's not going to sound exactly like the scholasticism of old or the precise theology of old, but it's uh, it's it's really helpful, I think, in that way. And it too is to be should be read in small quantities, <laughs> but it is an amazingly rewarding read, I think. So yeah. If the listener is struggling with what to think about what is often called postmodernity or late modernity, and and how Christianity relates to that. And should we be appropriating it? Should we be opposing it? What should we do? Certainly, this volume would be a foundational volume. Where would someone start if they were picking up Covenant and Eschatology? From the bookstore. (laughs) Absolutely. Goodness. That one, I would say, start in chapter one, but maybe have a good theological dictionary next to you, and and also maybe a good dictionary of basic philosophical figures, because, you know, he's he's speaking to the Academy. It's not an entry-level book. Mike has written some great entry-level stuff, but this is a book for the Academy. But uh, if you have maybe that, uh, those kind of, those two little dictionaries beside you with with some patience, uh, it can be an amazingly rewarding book. And again, you know, reading it in small doses, uh, maybe a chapter a week or something like that, you know, for the uninitiated. Uh, I'm, I'm a big advocate of jumping into the deep end of the pool and being willing to read something more than once if I have to in order to understand it. I think that just because, you know, we can have our dinners microwaved in 30 seconds and we can read praises in, you know, a minute, that doesn't necessarily mean that a slow read is a bad read. I think a slow read can be an amazingly rewarding read. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.